On this very first episode of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, I want to let you know as an audience that we recorded this episode as well as the next week episode, both on freedom of expression, prior to the tragic events in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I've been reflecting a lot on Charlottesville and our systems of student conduct and how our systems are mirrored off of the United States court systems, which means that they are not free from bias and discrimination as they stand. And we as individuals have so much work to do on our own with regards to social justice. While our jobs may require us to protect the speech of all students on our campuses, we are not required to be complicit in the messages that our students put forward. So as we think about student protest and think about Charlottesville, and the messages of white nationalists, white supremacists, and neo-Nazis that are coming forward in our communities. Although we can't use our conduct processes, and we shouldn't use our conduct processes to address student thought, we do not have to remain silent, and we shouldn't remain silent. So I encourage all of you to find your voice and find your own way to combat hateful and bigoted speech with speech that is pro-social, with speech that uplifts our black and brown colleagues and our black and brown students and each other. So I wish you all well uh, as we open the school year, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Lee Bird. Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Dr. Lee Bird. Dr. Bird is a past president of ASCA, as well as a past recipient of the Donald D. Gehring Award and the Parker D. Young Award within the association. You may know her as a fixture on your student affairs bookshelf as the co-author of The First Amendment on Campus, a handbook for college and university administrators book, which was published by NASPA in 2006. Dr. Bird, in her full-time role, serves as the vice president for student affairs at Oklahoma State University, Stillwater where she leads numerous functional areas, including the student union, campus life, university counseling, university health services, career services, dining, residential life, and the Department of Wellness. She also serves as an adjunct professor in the OSU Student Development Graduate Program. She's been in student affairs for over 36 years and has quite a credentialed list of uh, other areas of service outside of ASCA. She's been the vice president of the Colorado chapter of ATAP, which is the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, and she has membership in Phi Beta Delta Honor Society for International Scholars, which was in recognition of her work in Chinese higher education. She also serves as the chair of the Oklahoma State University Behavioral Consultation Team and is FEMA CERT and Incident Command Instructor Trainer Certified. She serves on a number of civic and professional boards, including the Oklahoma State Regents for Higher Ed, Council on Student Affairs, and the Campus Safety and Security Task Force, Central Oklahoma American Red Cross Board, and the Stillwater Medical Center Foundation Board. We're thankful for Dr. Bird's time, as well as being willing to be the very first guest on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, so I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lee Bird. Thank you. Uh, Lee, I'm really uh, grateful for your time today and excited to talk with you about the First Amendment on campus book, as well as other free speech things that are going on in higher education and kind of the the landscape for that in the U.S. right now. But I also want to talk to you about you. So wherever you want to start is awesome. 
Let's start with the First Amendment. All right. Um, well, Lee, I've got your book in front of me here. Um, for those of you who haven't had a chance to read it, I, I really encourage you to pick it up. It's entitled The First Amendment on Campus, a Handbook for College and University Administrators, uh, edited and partially authored by Dr. Lee Bird, Mary Beth Mackin, and Sandra K. Schuster. Right. What inspired you to begin this project and, and put this information out into space? Well, I had been doing a program uh, about First Amendment issues based on harassment, um, not Title IX necessarily, but that was certainly a part of it. Um, But just some of the things we were seeing on campus in the day, which is 10 times uh, we see more of it now, but was seeing kind of things that happened on campus and uh, had done several presentations at ASJA then. And in a discussion, invited uh, several folks to come together. In the final analysis, I asked Mary Beth and kind of joined the writing team. She was a great writer, good thinker, and wonderful colleague for this book project. And we also wanted to have an attorney with us. And since uh, Sawney had both been an assistant attorney general uh, for her state and it also you know, was a a scholar in her own right, invited her in to help kind of coordinate the writing. Even our friends from FIRE did a chapter about the 50 most influential First Amendment cases. And we did this book to try to make it a very straightforward, easy read. What do you need to know to protect, help protect students or the institution when we have First Amendment issues pop up? So this book was originally published in 2006, so it's just over a decade old. What has changed and what has stayed the same since its original release? Well, um, I think many things have stayed the same. I think you could pick up the book. I know it's still being used in in higher ed law classes and uh, other classes, so I still think it's that value. I think what's changed has been a real focus on social media. And uh, we we didn't really, you know, we had some issues of internet, uh, issues on the internet. But but I think really social media, the opportunity to capture things in in real time, post them, um, has been one of the most significant changes in that decade. Uh, The law still remains the same, but it's been interesting to see, you know, the, the notion of protest or seeing things happen or things being horrible things being posted online that we didn't probably see as much of 10 years ago. Right. So in 2006, uh, Facebook was in its infancy. I believe it was maybe only a year or two old. Twitter hadn't been born yet. Instagram hadn't been born yet. So many of the mediums we see our students using today didn't even exist. Um, so Absolutely. Quite a, an exponential trajectory of the availability of information in that short span. Right. So when you look at kind of what you've written and what you present on, what what do you think are the most important tenets of free speech and the First Amendment on college campuses today? Well, I still think it is it is a huge challenge for us, and it's it's because, you know Kermit Hall I think still said it best. And he was talking about Kermit Hall wrote for the uh, First Amendment Center, which is a um, now it's part of the museum. And and it's a center that really does think uh, about the First Amendment, write about First Amendment issues. And he talked about the First Amendment as being um, the most paradoxical of constitutional principles. And he said, now I'll just quote him, he said, it's obvious because given the nature of academic inquiry, only an open, robust and critical environment for speech will support the quest for truth. At the same time, universities are at once communities that must balance the requirements of free speech with issues of civility, respect, and human dignity. 
And that and that was written in 2002, and I think it's more powerful today than it was in 2002, because it is, you know, students want, uh, you know, they, they, controversial speakers on campus. We saw what happened at Berkeley, and so there, there's a lot of issues around that balance, but the First Amendment is the First Amendment. And, and that has not changed. And we need to honor the First Amendment because I do think it is so powerful in a free society that we maintain the First Amendment. And when you really look at either the book or any book about First Amendment, you'll see a lot of the cases are, are cases about the KKK, um, people that you really, you know, at least emotionally wouldn't want to protect. But the First Amendment is deep and it protects, um, you, you know, the, the stuff that we don't want to hear, don't want to see, that's the stuff that really needs the protection. And in a free and open society, we need to really hear. And I hear, you know, all sides of, of issues instead of just, you know, kind of lopping them off. So I think that's the, the, the notion of that balancing act, knowing that the First Amendment exists and we should honor the First Amendment, but also address the issues of civility on our campus and, and finding that balance and, and doing that dance. I think that is a balance that administrators who are enforcing policies are really struggling with, particularly in in the balance of when is it free speech and when is it bordering into harassment? Well, in harassment, um, you know, Title VI, Title IX, harassment is very clearly defined. And it's, and you know that language, you, you probably have memorized most of that language as, as being um, uh, pervasive, persistent. Um, that that language has not changed either for you know sexual uh, har- gender harassment, gender discrimination, Title IX, or other issues under kind of OCR's guidance. And it's I don't know that it's that complicated. What students struggle with, and and I think many, uh, especially young administrators, is that their tolerance for hearing bad things, for hate speech, which is protected. Mm-hmm. For hearing things that are hateful and expecting the university to, you know, throw the bums out. And they don't know, I think most students don't know a great deal about the First Amendment. That's why nationally the, the feds wanted to start a, uh, you know, a day just on the Constitution so students would really understand it. Most students don't, most people don't understand the First Amendment. Most people don't really understand how powerful and and the need to have a First Amendment, uh, the strength of the First Amendment if we don't want to have a totalitarian society. So I think we have to protect it, but it's that discomfort that's really driving some of the campuses crazy. And I do a lot of lectures across the country about this, not lectures, but actually workshops. Uh, Mary Beth and I did, Sonny, Mary Beth and I have done several, where we go in and talk about, well, what can we do? If it is First Amendment protected, what can we do? And to spend a great deal of time, you know, you don't just ignore it. As an institution, we need to address it. And how do we do that? And looking at programs across the country that are doing a good job of having people talk to each other, even about things that are hateful, and and learn from each other, which is what I think we should be all about. Can you dig into that a little bit? What can we do? Well, I'll give you an example, and this is not a this is not a, a, an ad for this particular group. But we did have an opportunity to bring uh, a group. I'm trying to remember the name, uh, bring it to the table on campus, and they did a they had a documentary talking about these these difficult conversations. 
And we brought that the a speaker in, did the documentary, and then talked about coming to the table. And it was actually the documentary was done during the time that Trump and, you know, just during uh, even before Trump was running. So it's a little bit old. I mean, not that old. It was the uh, last election, not current election. But but talking about uh, the election and just how we just can't talk to each other about tough issues. So bring it to the table was designed to create a, a mechanism for bringing people to the table to talk about tough issues. And some of the things they talked about, and we, what we did on our campus is to, we have what's called an executive leadership group, which is the 20 top powerhouse groups on my campus, international students, uh, domestic minority students, just anybody we, we have that's in as part of that executive leadership council invited that group, uh, you know, current officers and incoming officers to go to the um, movie, bottom dinner, had the movie, and then um, actually participate. So she brings up how do we, you know, why do you align politically and, and you know, how do you align politically and why? So she starts by on this little table with two people sitting across from each other, um, moving a, a little flower, a vase, um, one side or the other. So far right, far left, something else. So that's where they start to start that conversation. She talks about, uh, you know, one of the other questions was what shaped your political identity? Who are you? What do you believe? What are your parents? You know, so thinking about how we became the, the you know, damn Democrat that we are or the Republican or independent, where does that come from? And then talking about um, whether we have changed our mind politically about any topic. So somebody that might be far right on something is really kind of far left on one particular issue or vice versa. She talks about, you know, political spectrum and and talking about how do we you know, what has skewed our view. So it's really just kind of a fascinating discussion about hard conversations. And there's similar programs on CNN that are about difficult conversation. Whole books have been written about things like critical conversations. How do we begin a dialogue instead of just running away? How do we begin a dialogue about how hurtful and hateful language can be? And why do we use it? What's that about? And I think that is a much better method than um, either violating the First Amendment or ignoring what's going on and, and the institution just holding up its hands and saying we can't do anything about it because neither neither of those uh, opposites are true. Let's take a minute and look at this through a private institution lens. So the, the private institutions are not under the same obligations uh, as a public institution. So what advice do you have there? What do you suggest for those institutions that are managing similar situations? Uh, you're right, Jill, that in a, at a private institution, it's the First Amendment only applies, constitutionally applies to um, public institutions. That's that's the hook. But most people don't know that if the university talks about the marketplace of ideas or uh, freedom of speech or other things in their literature, they may be ob- obligated contractually mm-hmm. to honor the First Amendment. So it's not... Again, it's not uh, one or the other. In California, all publics and privates have to protect the constitutional rights of students. So it's not one way or the other. It's now it's it could we could be uh, held accountable to the First Amendment in different ways. And the First Amendment is not just about the ability for students and guest speakers to engage in free speech. It's also one of the core tenets of academic freedom. 
Um, it is academic freedom is not mentioned at all in the First Amendment, but I, I think, and I think maybe perhaps some people are a little bit unclear about that. Um, but it is, it is, you know, the the notion of having the freedom to teach, the freedom to learn, were part of the first two tenets of of the original, uh, you know, notions of academic freedom by the AAUP. And, th- and they also talk about uh, extramural conversations, so what you say in your community. But with every right, there are some, some cautions there, too. Uh, if you're in a math class and you're talking about sex, it won't be, it's not academic freedom because it really has no bearing on the class you're supposed to be teaching. If it is a gratuitous uh, violence or gratuitous you know, sexual language or swearing or whatever else, um, that's not, I mean, that's, that's addressed in the AAUP. So again, not a, not a black and, and white or yes or no kind of thing, but it's not part of the First Amendment, but it is often considered you know, with, as, a, as a freedom of speech protection, but it's not in the, in the uh First Amendment. Fair enough. Uh, I think what one of the things that we're kind of working through as campuses right now, in addition to kind of those hate speech things that you were mentioning, is a, a resurgence in a, in a positive way of student activism, student engagement, and student protest. And I think one of the things that conduct officers and other higher ed administrators can struggle with is, you know, this idea of when can my students exercise that right? Where should they be able to do that? One of the things that I that I've landed on a lot is this whole idea of time, place, and manner. Can you talk a little bit about time, place, and manner when it comes to uh, free speech and protest? Sure. But time, place, and manner is part of a bigger discussion, which is covered in the book. Um, kind of an important, but um, <laughs> some people find it really boring. Um, <laughs> We're all higher ed nerds. <laughs> I think there are new, nerds among us that like this stuff. <laughs> But it's it, it's really uh, has to be in a discussion of of forum analysis, which is you know in what uh, in which forum what forum did uh, the the speech uh, or conduct occur? So on our campuses, um, we have uh, for a public campus, my like my my campus is we would have a place on campus that is just an iconic base. And it's not just it's owned or controlled by the government. And as a, you know, when we think government, we need to think public university. Um, But it's the areas by long tradition or government fiat have been devoted to assembly or debate. Think about that iconic space on your campus, that beautiful green mall has always been used that way. So that would really be a traditional public forum. And with that, there are certain, you know, you said time, place, and manner restrictions or time, place, and manner concerns. But it actually, the, the bigger picture is if you're in a traditional public forum or a uh, designated public forum, strict scrutiny applies. And with strict scrutiny, you have to have a really good reason, a compelling interest is what the law says, which could be safety or interference with the mission to interrupt or limit speech. So the type of forum may dictate what rules you can apply. So just thinking time, place, and manner isn't really enough information to act on. Sure. So, so conversely, got... if you have a, a limited public forum or a non-public forum, right. um, the rules uh, are, need to be reasonable and viewpoint 
neutral and a non-public forum, things like campus offices, residence hall rooms, classrooms are not public forums at all. So different rules apply, and that's that's it's really the lack of a forum, non-public forum. Um, so that it really has no bearing. Students can't protest in a classroom. It's it's really not permitted. If they do, they can be asked to leave. And a bigger issue uh, beyond time, place, and manner is well, what's freedom of speech and what's uh, civil disobedience? And that I hear come up quite a bit. And if a if a student is uh, in a non say non public forum like a campus office, the, they may tolerate that for certain hours of the day. But when they need to lock up the office, and they say police department or others on campus say um, you need to leave at five. If you don't leave at five, you'll be arrested. And if you're still at there at five and you get arrested, it is what it is. That's considered civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. My father used to get arrested long after he <laughs> retired. He was he was arrested a number of times because he was a really good protester and no nuke and, and a variety of, of – and he would be the one that got arrested because he didn't have to protect his uh, employment or anything else. So he was always the volunteer, and it was, you know, very orderly. But that is civil, civic disobedience, and I think there's even a place for that as well. But students really need to understand. For me, it's not just protesting – but talking, and that I think is is the is the thing that we need to do. Don't just protest. Don't burn up somebody's car. Don't you know break all the windows of a you know uh, another citizen's um, livelihood. That's to me that is not appropriate. That is not a good response. Why aren't we talking about the issues that affect us? Bringing in you know understanding how the systems work, bringing in people, um, having those com- critical conversations about the issues of today, not just protesting. And I think it needs to be more than just protest. And I've done my fair share of protests, Jill. May not surprise you, but um, so I think it's I think it has to be more than just the protest. But uh, this notion of forum and time, place, and matter that applies to forum analysis. It's a little bit complex, but we try to simplify it in the book to make it understandable. Now, Lee, I see the book is dedicated to James M. Bird. Is that your father? It was. He died. Um, uh, he died in uh, August sixth, and. I was actually on the phone to to Mary Beth when when she, when he passed away and asked my colleagues if I could dedicate it to him as a good little protester and he was always always politically engaged he was a great volunteer but also a great you know he wrote letters to the editor he did a lot of things so I asked my colleagues if we could dedicate it to him cuz he died in August the book came out in in de- finally it was published, came out. We saw it in de- on December 6th. We saw the first copy of the book. So somewhere in that time, a couple of months after we had finished the book and submitted it, I asked my colleagues if I could do that. And then that was why. Because he really believed in the First Amendment and, and believed in protest and believed in conversations and the role of government. And he was, he was quite the activist. That's a perfect dedication. And it sounds like you were inspired by him a lot in your own activism. Absolutely. So I I do want to touch on uh, speech codes as well. It's been a trendy topic that has come and gone and come and gone and kind of a sine wave over time. Uh, I've also seen that, you know, there one state at least has introduced uh, a bill that kills speech codes. I know that the organization FIRE has a lot of strong opinions on them. Uh, What are your thoughts? 
Uh, speech codes are, are not a good thing. There, I've never seen one that's been written that can pass constitutional muster. Mm-hmm. So while we want to believe we could read it, uh, read Dovey, Michigan, Shippenburg University, uh, Bear v. Shippenburg, Dovey, Michigan, there are many cases where people thought, well, we'll just write a code. Because, you know, sometimes uh, when we have institutional problems, that's what we think. You know, let's, let's just, we've got a problem, let's go write, write a policy. Um, but writing a policy that will pass constitutional scrutiny is uh, nearly impossible. And and it is because the um, it takes in it's either vague, meaning people really can't understand it, or it is uh, unconstitutionally overbroad, meaning it takes in protected speech as well as unprotected speech. So we, we just have to be really careful about trying to write a code because it generally doesn't work. Um, fire, in one of my favorite favorite things to read about, Fire took on OCR, if you can imagine. This was in 2003, and OCR wrote a Dear Colleague letter about it. And this was this is really speaks to the speech code that they said, OCR wrote back and said, some colleges and universities have interpreted OCR's prohibition of harassment as encompassing all offensive speech regarding sex, disability, race, or other classifications. Harassment, however, to be prohibited by the statutes within OCR jur- jurisdiction must include something beyond the mere expression of ideas, words, symbols, or thought that a person finds offensive. So they got bullied <laughs> in bullying OCR. They had to write an OCR letter that really clarified that because mm-hmm. people were using harassment policies to, to create de facto speech codes, and that's very problematic. And that's what FIRE addresses in their literature um, often. I would have. Uh, I was not quite in the profession in 2003, but I'm, I'm going to go back and dig out that Dear Colleague letter. Um, sounds like one of the original Dear Colleague letters. It, it, it is. There's actually a website for that. If you want to look up old uh, Dear Colleague letters, it's in the book as well. But um, it is. It was just interesting that that Fire went out and said, "Gosh, people are. You know, your campuses are doing this, and they're doing it in part because you haven't been clear about what's protected and unprotected speech. So that's why they got. They had to write the letter. I would have loved to have been on a, a fly of the wall for that academic discourse. That sounds really fascinating. Uh, do you know what the website is that folks can visit to find that? Uh, Office of Civil Rights, dear colleague, letters. Um, and there's, there should be, I, I haven't looked at it in some time, but there is a, a kind of a, a compendium of Dear Colleague Letters on a wide variety of topics. But if you put in Dear Colleague Letter, free speech, Dear Colleague Letter, to, it was July 2003 when the letter was sent out. You'll probably Google it and, and find it. Excellent. Now, Leah, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask, where can folks, if folks are interested in learning a lot more about this topic, obviously your book is a great resource, but how do you suggest that individuals go about researching and learning more about uh, the interpretation of free speech on college campuses and particularly kind of the management of those concerns when they arise on our campuses? Sure. And, and Jill, I think like everything else that our our colleagues are dealing with, you know, whether it's Title IX related, First Amendment, and many other 
so many other issues, is, you know, go to the Internet, read a book, read several books, um, but just to educate yourself and so that you can then educate um, some administrators about, you know, people often think, well, let's just write a policy. Of course it will work. It'll be, and if you have resources that you've, you've done some work with, Gary Pavella wrote many, many uh, articles about application of First Amendment in the law and policy, and I think ASCA still has that resource available of the, you know, kind of the compendium of those. And he addressed this topic and versions of this topic probably 20 times. So I think that's a great resource. The book, thank you, I think is a, is a good resource, especially if you are not an attorney and you need kind of non, you know, you, you, you don't speak legalese, but you really want to understand something about why it matters. I think this, this is a good resource. They can go online and look at things like the First Amendment Center, uh, org, which is a great online resource. And it, and you will see if you do uh, online resources for First First Amendment. Google that. You'll end up with several different websites that can help. Uh, Fire has free books. I'm not advertising for them. Um, we have a little bit different approach, but we're we're on the same team in that regard. So so they have you know good resources as well. So there there are a number of ways a number of ways for for our colleagues to stay up to speed. And when in doubt, they may need to consult their attorney for the institution or work through an administrator to do that because there are some real tough issues. The space designation. Well, we went through that process years ago. We talk about, you know, what are our, what spaces do we have on our campus? What do we consider it? How would we know that? What's written down and what's just kind of there? And a lot of institutions are like that, where, where somebody thinks it is what it is, but we haven't really talked about it or written it up. So we went through that process on our campus, and we had, you know, attorneys uh, with us in that process and folks like, you know, housing and the student union, which are, those are very complex, uh, athletic facilities, academic facilities, and went through that whole discussion. It was incredibly valuable to do that. And what rules should apply and how do we notify students of what rules apply? So there, there are tons of things that can be done. Tons of good resources to help guide our campuses and our colleagues in that process. And if people have questions and want to visit, they can even call me. Excellent. Well, let's talk about you a little bit. So Lee, you know, you've been a past president of ASCA, you have been on the Garing Academy faculty a large number of times. You know, you've been the distinguished service honoree, you've won several awards through, through the association. So can you talk a little bit about your journey up through what was then ASJA to your relationship with the association now, and how that helped shape your career as a current vice president? I will tell you that nothing, if I look for the single best career booster or, you know, what, what has impacted me most thinking back 39 and a half years in the profession, I, I would say ASJA, ASCA was that thing. Colleagues, dear, dear, dear colleagues, learning from some of the, the best people across the country, um, having the opportunity to both teach and learn when you go to a conference. That's pretty rare. Uh, having the opportunity to have, you know, 200 folks that you can pick up the phone and call and say, hey, what would you do? Or what's, have you had this problem before? How do you handle it? 
So there are, there's just a, it's been such a part of my life having had that relationship and that with, with ASCA and the, and the people, it's all about the people, of course. Um, but it's been, that's been a huge part of my career. We have been so grateful to learn from you over the years. I don't know if you mind touching on, I know that uh, for a long time, you and Mary Beth would have a good time inserting kind of funny phrases or words into the case law update at the conference every year. How did that come to be? How did that? I don't know how that actually started, but that has been more fun, and we've we've tried to keep that going. We're all friends and colleagues, Scott Lewis and uh, Bill Fisher and Sonny Schuster and Mary Beth and uh, I would write down, and it started because of a, the book. It started because of the book, because we were laughing, and this is as we were kind of probably writing the first chapter. Um, Mary Beth kind of looked around and said, okay, what word do you think we should embed in the book? <laughs> Uh, and we just started laughing. So we found a way to get porcupine in there, which was her pick. All right. So if you see some prickly issue, it's it's porcupine, and that's, that's what started it. That started us on the road when Mary Beth was still alive. We did it for several years, where before somebody presented, any of these five people presented, or any of us, you would give them, and the academy is where it got going, and then extended into the um, into the conference. You know, national conference. So it started. It, it was started with the book, then went to the academy, and at the academy, each of us would would slide in two or three words that would be hard to fit in. You know, college too easy, sure. uh, offensive too easy. Um, so you had to find that word that that might be a little bit more challenging to fit in. And uh, so we did it to each other all the time, <laughs> and then it went into the national conference. And it's just kind of a joke. And I and Sonny's. Darn, all three of those, everybody is good at it. Um, Scott may be the king. <laughs> Scott can find a way to, to get in some pretty odd words. So that's how it started. And it, and it was it was just kind of, it was a joke, but it's been a, a, you know, we've been amused by it for years. So I think those of us who are kind of aware of the inside joke are always amused to kind of hear and guess what the weird word is for that particular session. But I think it's so demonstrative of the collegiality and the family that is ASCA. And I just think it's, you know, it's incredible that you've been able to stick around um, with the association, you know, as you've risen in the ranks through your career. What advice would you give to, you know, mid-level professionals that are looking to rise to director levels and some directors that are looking to rise into those deans and VP types of roles? Right. It is, I think higher ed is getting tougher. I really do. I think the challenges that we face, funding issues in many states, uh, the students themselves and their perspective on the world, national there's a lot of things going on that make higher education a little bit more challenging than it was probably uh, in the 1970s when I started. But I think what advice I would give is we are generally training folks in student affairs to be uh, good generalists. And I think there is a need for folks, especially in student conduct, you know, take a, a higher ed law class, take a start reading, do joint readings and discussions. So you really do understand some of the uh, things that you really need to know. And as I said, that's getting more complex, not less. You know, First Amendment has always been around, but it's really bubbling up now more 
than than usual. I've been very busy, <laughs> as well as my other colleagues are very busy because people are asking, hey, can you come to campus and do a program on fill in the blank? So it's that's been busy. But Title IX, think about all the changes, Clery Act, Clery reporting. Think of all the things that have occurred that we're trying to respond to. So as a new professional, start reading and keep it up. Come to the conferences, go to the academy, talk to other people. You know, you think you're all alone or you just don't get something. You you, you go to a conference like uh, ASCA and you can find people talking, presenting on those issues that you thought nobody even knew about or cared about. That's what makes ASCA really special. That's what makes the academy special is that you develop specialized knowledge and learning well beyond your master's degree, even a PhD in some cases. It's going to go well beyond what you may have learned in a master's or a doctoral program in student affairs to be very specific about this line of work, which is so incredibly important on our campuses. So it really, it's training, it's, it's information, it's training, and that needs to be lifelong. Kids, students, students are coming out of master's degrees with no, no knowledge of a budget. You need to know something about how to do a budget. So if they really want to make that next jump, they need to go from generalist to specialist. And our association has proudly done that for over 25 years. So it's really staying current, um, learning, being open to learning new things, trying new things, and bringing that back to the to us to the profession. Um, so don't you know if if you're a specialist in some area, don't keep it to yourself. Write about it. Do presentations at the conference. Work up to the Gehring Academy, or you know, because this is how our association was created, and this is how it's been built. And I think it's still you know the people are still the best part of our association. For sure. I know that, you know, for me personally, I, I think of ASCA as my professional home. I've been a part of it for just over a decade now, and I've been able to connect with and be mentored by, by some of the folks who literally have written the books. And I think that's just an opportunity you don't get in larger organizations. Yeah, and this and this was my home. I mean, this I'll tell you that this was uh, ASCA, ASJ was my professional home and really took me out of. Uh, I'd I'd not done any presentations. I did my first presentation at a conference. I don't know that I should admit this. Um, <laughs> at my first ASCA conference, so I heard about ASCA, ASCA, ASJA in the day. Um, I heard about the conference and I thought, well, I'd like to go. Well, maybe I could talk about this. I actually presented at my first conference and I was hooked. And when I went from Pennsylvania to Minnesota, John Blessing, who um, I, I have no idea where he is right now, but John Blessing said, oh, you moved to Minnesota, didn't you? You're now state rep. <laughs> and that got me in. That sucked me into the vortex. And then somebody said, you know, you ought to apply to be a you know member at large on the board. I never even thought about this stuff. That wasn't me. And yet this organization gave me the confidence and the opportunity to do that. And it made such a difference in my career trajectory, my happiness, my sense of, of uh, you know, kind of purpose and collegiality with my colleagues. It, it didn't exist without ASCA. It wouldn't have existed without ASCA. And we're happy to have you continue in it. Uh, we just, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we just honored Lee with a, a lifetime honorary membership at the last conference. So we hope that you'll stick around and continue to participate as long as you want to. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, it's been such a big part of my life, and I, I will come as as I can, um, but still have an opportunity to, you know, I'm still doing consulting on First Amendment stuff, so, you know, uh, I get to see a whole lot of colleagues that way as well. And Lee, how can folks get a hold of you if they'd like to get in contact? Sure. Um, Lee, L-E-E dot bird, B-I-R-D, at okstate.edu. All right. So you can email Lee. And if you're interested in getting a hold of the podcast to ask additional questions or just provide feedback, you can reach us at ascapodcast at gmail.com. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ascapodcast. Thank you so much, Lee, for sharing your viewpoint today. Thank you, Madam President, for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Will Creeley with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, also known as FIRE. We will be continuing our discussion on freedom of expression and hope you'll come back and take a listen. This episode was hosted and produced by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mader, associate produced by Trevor Stewart. Thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. And special thanks to Craig Jolly for setting up our audio equipment and teaching us how to use it. Special thanks to Dave at Twitter at PodHostDave from the Nothing Important Podcast for teaching us how to use our audio software. And thanks to Adam Furtman for serving as our podcast guinea pig.